very happy today to be joined by Nick Molo from Aldersgate Group. Nick um, has very kindly agreed to come and really sort of give a perspective on the recent 10-point plan that Boris Johnson laid out for the UK. And uh, Nick, perhaps you could give a little bit of background to you, uh, to Aldersgate, and then and then we'll launch on into to looking at what Boris has laid out for us all. Yeah, well, of course, I'd be, I'd be happy to, to do that. So uh, I'm Nick Moller, I'm the executive director of the Aldersgate uh, Group. Before we, before I, I joined Aldersgate Group, I actually started my career as an uh, environmental and energy lawyer for a, a commercial law firm called uh, CMS in London, where I was working for a range of uh, project developers, including in the renewable energy sector, to get some of the first renewable energy projects off the ground back in the uh, early 2010s. Um, and uh, I also uh, worked for uh, a range of uh, environmental regulators in helping them uh, design the rules of emissions trading and uh, other kind of uh, um, uh, areas of uh, environmental regulation. Uh, I moved to WWF after that as their head of climate and energy policy, which was really interesting because I got to really work uh, on the other side of the fence, so to speak, and, and see things from an NGO perspective. Um, and after a few years there, I uh, moved to Aldersgate. And I think Aldersgate Group is, is quite unique because it combines that business and civil society voice. So we have a very broad uh, membership. Our aim is not to be as big as possible. It's about breadth. We want to have um, up to three or four members per sector who are all leading sustainability in their respective sector. Um, and we also have, um, so we have over 55 uh, member organizations today. Most of them are businesses, but we have some great NGOs on board, some great academic institutions uh, on board as well. And our focus is really on making the business case for ambitious environmental policy. How do you design climate policy? How do you design environmental policy in a way that helps us tackle some of the big environmental challenges that we face? but which also helps us address other social and economic priorities in terms of um, creating jobs in new supply chains, growing new supply chains, developing new areas of competitive advantage or, or, or exports, and really uh, helping scale up the workforce in the process. And it's really about bringing together the environmental and economic dimension of this debate, which, which I love about our, our work at Aldersgate. And we really work across the piece from climate change and energy through to resource efficiency, natural capital, trade, green finance, as and it's a really fascinating time to be doing this. And am I right, um, I think I'm right that I saw on the website, your focus as a group is UK, although you do have some international businesses that are in your membership as well. Yeah, we have lots of uh, international businesses and international NGOs, actually, uh, like WWF uh, in the membership and big international businesses such as um, uh, Siemens, such as IKEA, such as Tesco, such as Cemex, uh, Bank of America and others. Um, and the, uh, yeah, I would say about 75% of our work is, is UK, but we are still very focused on the uh, EU policy development. Um, we work a fair bit uh, in Brussels around issues around uh, economic recovery following COVID. Uh, but also over the last five years, we've done a lot with European Commission around circular economy and provided quite a lot of business case studies to inform the circular economy package. Um, and we've also been working uh, with EU officials around their 2030 uh, emission reduction targets and their strategy on sustainable finance. Uh, and uh, despite Brexit, we think there's still a lot of value for both um, our members, but also uh, I think um, the, the overall climate and, and environmental policy framework to, to work both on the UK and EU dimension, because there, there will remain areas which, which require good collaboration between both sides. 
Actually, on the environmental side, there's not a lot of divergence between what Europe is seeking to achieve and what the UK is certainly talking about. Is there? I don't haven't seen. It's a very good question. I mean, I, I think what what I find quite baffling at the moment, and um, we should say that we're recording this podcast when uh, uh, the ultimate Brexit negotiations are still ongoing, and they were supposed to finish a few they days ago. They may be ongoing forever. I think they could be ongoing forever. So yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> so, so I think one of the but one of the big issues of contention is around alignment. Alignment of regulation, including environmental regulations on the EU side and the UK side. And in many ways, I find that quite baffling because the UK is committed to net zero uh, emissions uh, by 2050. The EU has a climate neutrality goal by the same date. The UK has an environment bill, which will commit it to delivering uh, a, a deep levels of uh, nature restoration and environmental improvements over the next 25 years. The EU has a biodiversity strategy for 2030, which it's going to commit it to much the same thing. So actually, both sides need to really ratchet up their um, their emission reduction commitments, their uh, individual regulations, their product standards. And in many ways, I don't think that should really be an area of contention in, in Brexit negotiations, because both sides are going to have to be uh, ratcheting up what they, you know, the standards and rules that they currently have, and it's a, in many ways it's a shame that there is uh, the, the Brexit negotiations in that regard have proved to be quite a big distraction from the fact that actually everyone needs to to up their game uh, when it comes to environmental regulations. Well, as you say, we are um, probably days away from either a final it's going nowhere or a deal being struck. So until we till we see what happens, who who knows what lies ahead. But let's let's come back into a, an area of a little bit more comfort, which is at least what what uh, here in the UK uh, the government has laid out as their ten point plan. And yeah, I mean the goal of having you come to talk about it, I think it's sort of your position and your position at Aldsgate affords us a real benefit, a benefit of you are kind of above the fray in a sense, in that you have a neutral view, but you are backed by obviously people that have uh, a lot that they're hoping to achieve from this 10-point plan, as you say, job creation, uh, industry expansion, kind of increased competitiveness, but again, within this uh, field of uh, kind of protecting the, protecting the climate. So tell me, let's start with sort of kind of a positive start point. What, what when you read that 10-point plan and when your members did, what did you take away as the main positives of it? What did you find was uh, energizing? Was there anything surprising? Just give us the kind of the lie of the land uh, from there. Well, the, the first thing I would say is that I really like the narrative book. And I think a lot of commentators missed out on that when they first reacted to it. Um, we could have written the first paragraph and Boris Johnson's first quote in the, in the number 10 press release. And for years, we and others have been trying to make the case that ambitious climate and environmental goals can really make the economy more competitive, can help um, create new areas of competitive advantage, new areas of uh, supply chain growth uh, and, and job creation and, and export. And for years, we've really struggled to get that message across. And we're now finally in a, in a, in a, a situation where actually uh, putting the UK on a pathway to net zero, putting the UK on the pathway to uh, reversing the environmental decline that we've seen over the last uh, several decades is actually seen as an economic opportunity, especially in a context of post-COVID recovery. And I don't think that should be underestimated. Words are indeed just words, but they do matter. And I think they matter, particularly in this instance, when we are still in the early days of a new government, where that, that, that positive framing, which rightly 
uh, aligns economic, social, and environmental objectives. Uh, it creates it creates a platform where through which we can actually deliver gradually more ambitious policy commitments in a range of areas to put us, you know, on a path for for, for net zero emissions and, and delivering other environmental commitments. So I think. The framing was a really positive one, and and I, and I really welcome that. Uh, within the ten point plan, um, you had a range of more developed and less developed commitments. Um, but I would say within the more developed ones, clearly the phase out of petrol and diesel um, uh, vehicle sales by twenty thirty is a really important commitment. Um, we know it was only a couple of years ago that the government committed to phase, for the phase out date to be set in 2040. Uh, I was convinced that they would opt for 2035, that they wouldn't want to go too soon. And I think the fact that they've gone for 2030 deserves credit. Uh, and it's a really, really important market signal because you're telling not just to car manufacturers, but to the whole supply chain uh, that they depend on and to the whole electric charging infrastructure supply chain, the battery supply chain, the whole ecosystem, that this is a direction where we are uh, going in and we're going to get there pretty fast. And now's the time to accelerate business model change, accelerate innovation and accelerate market rollout. Um, so I think that this announcement was really welcome. And the fact that it came with commitment on charging infrastructure, on battery investment, but also on supporting grants for consumers was, was really uh, important. I think the other big positive for me was the focus on uh, um, low carbon industry. I think for quite a long time, this has been a very underdeveloped and overlooked area of policy. Um, the commitment to develop four industrial clusters with CCS by, by 2030 is a really important one. And I think that's quite sort of... Uh, lead uh, quite a sort of leading position to adopt on global standards now clearly there's a lot of detail lacking at the moment and innovation funding lacking in terms of you know how do we actually get there in over the next 10 years but nonetheless i think it's a really the right kind of uh, commitment to set so you know, that for me will be my my sort of key key positives from the from the 10 point plan out of interest was is the goal of the 10 point plan is your understanding of the goal of it was it to group together the story of how the uk is going after this or was it supposed to be a tool of a government saying this is what we want to do and what we're going to invest in and the, the reason I ask that is because some of these things are already in motion you know they are already being invested in or being worked on so I, it was interesting to me I, I, I mean I thought it was as you say it was a well-constructed set of points and arguments but was it intended to show a kind of government plan or is it more this is this is the energy of the UK and this is what we see as our story yeah, I mean, I mean it's, there's a range of views uh, on this, and I think some people will see it as uh, an opportunistic intervention to to want to. There's clearly quite big cross economy, political, and social consensus around uh, needing to to do more on climate change and environmental issues and and low carbon growth, and therefore number ten wants to sort of be seen to be active in that area. That's one interpretation. Another one is to say actually, it's really there to build on the green economy narrative that the government adopted over the summer. And others wondered whether this was the government plan to get to net zero emissions. Now, my my feeling is that this is certainly not the um, the government plan to get to net zero emissions because to get to net zero emissions, we need a far more comprehensive uh, plan that's a lot more joined up and um, that includes a lot more regulatory and policy interventions, which will be essential to get private investment flowing. In, in green technologies and, uh, and business models. But I think that the way I look at a 10-point plan is I think it's, it's, it's a desire by 
by, by government to build on its green economy narrative, uh, to give a bit more substance to it, and to make some uh, some important commitments on the path to net zero. And I, does, and I do think that, um, especially on, on surface transport, but to a degree on um, buildings and heavy industry, the 10-point the plan does do that to an extent. Um, I think what's positive about it is it seeks to take action in in 10 different areas. Now, I don't think those 10 actions are particularly well joined up, but at least it demonstrates a recognition that if you are going to put yourself as a country on the way to net zero, you need to take action in several places at the same time. This is a, is a, is a, a systemic challenge that affects the whole economy. So you need to make interventions on buildings, heavy industry, energy, transport, and so on. And, and at least that came across as part of the plan. No, I agree. And I think probably my question sounded a little more cynical than, than maybe I meant it. But I I think what's good about it is for these many of these projects sort of, they, well, they operate in isolation or they're being initiated in semi-isolation. And to sort of weave them together into something already feels like, I don't know, it feels like it's you know, yeah, as you as you put it well at the start, which is making a, a proper narrative out of it rather than just disparate projects that we'll have a go at. And to me, I think there's value in that anyway, because I think one of the things that I hear when I talk to people is the sense of still a little bit of feeling alone in what they're doing, you know, so that that has value, um, I think. No, no. And, and for me, I mean, I think it's an interesting point. And, and it's worth actually also um, reminding ourselves that actually just yesterday on the 14th of December, the energy white paper came out. Now, the energy white paper helps build on a 10-point plan to an extent because it it's, uh, makes clear, clear commitments around uh, fully decarbonizing the power sector. Now, again, the government talks about 2050. We know that it needs to be done by 2035. The Committee on Climate Change made that very clear in the six-carbon budget. But nonetheless, there's a, you know, there's a recognition that that's where we need to go. Uh, there's um, government announced its commitment to setting up a UK emissions trading scheme aligned with net zero emissions, albeit they're going to consult on that next year. So they, they have already started a sort of deepening that narrative and announcing, you know, building on their policy commitments. I think what was positive about the energy white paper especially in terms of how it relates to the 10-point plan is that the was very explicit in the in the way the government set out its plans that there is a clear recognition that energy sector decarbonization is vital for what we're trying to do in heating or we're trying to do on transport and what we're trying to do in heavy industry all of which will rely to a degree on electrification or will need significant amounts of renewables to produce green hydrogen um, so so i think that that joined upness uh, is really welcome um, normally energy white papers just read like energy documents just talking about different bits of the energy sector and consumer bills this was this came across much more as a low carbon industrial vision for the uk and that's exactly what i think an energy white paper should be so in that sense that was uh, you know that was positive but again many important specifics needed in 2021 and beyond to to be on a on a credible pathway to net zero well let's let's maybe sort of pick out a couple of the gaps then so you know those are partly this maybe the lack of specifics which maybe at this point we wouldn't have expected but we're going to need soon um but what did you feel was missing if anything or what what were you hoping for that wasn't there was there anything that stood out as being a thundering gap in it for you the first thing i would flag is is the importance of taking a more systemic approach and that's that's always much harder for 
for, for, for government and, and policymakers, because it's not about making a flagship announcement. It's about making sure everything actually works together. And it's probably sometimes a bit harder to sell to the public, but it's tremendously important. Um, it's it's become increasingly uh, apparent from talking to our, our cross-economy membership at the Aldersgate Group that actions in one area really have an impact on others. So to give a concrete example, the, the decisions we will make on transport and on heating, and in particular, the relative role of electricity versus hydrogen, will have profound impacts on the amount of um, low carbon power and in particular renewable energy and offshore wind that we will need. It will have a profound impact on the investments we need to make in terms of grid reinforcements, in terms of storage, in terms of interconnection, flexibility services. And so you need um, a clear uh, a clear understanding from a business and investor perspective of what policy decisions are going to be made when and what, in what sector. What are the pathways that are going to be followed for different sectors, and how are these going to be how are these going to be connected? I think that's absolutely that's absolutely key. Uh, now, in terms of actual policy gaps, um, I think what, where the, what the the um, the ten point plan did well on surface transport by introducing a very clear phase out date for uh, the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles by twenty thirty, and some incentives to go with it. It now needs to replicate this for other parts of the economy. I think the most urgent area of intervention for me is buildings. Um, we still do not have robust regulatory standards that mandate that uh, new buildings or existing buildings should operate at uh, very high levels of energy efficiency and should have to comply with um, uh, very tight limits on, on carbon emissions. And that's really a big uh, a, a big policy gap and one that's been going on for, for decades and that's where, where um, arguments in favour of policy intervention or, or have, have, have been going on for, for, for decades. And I think really a, a stick and carrot approach in, in those sorts of sectors where we have uh, clear regulations such as the future home standards for new builds, but also clear regulations for existing homes combined with fiscal incentives that will make it more attractive for homeowners to invest in energy efficiency and potentially low carbon heat um, uh, measures is, is going to be absolutely critical if we're going to cut uh, emissions from our, from our 28 million homes. Uh, but another interesting area will be heavy industry. Um, at the moment, the focus on heavy industry rightly is on innovation. And again, in a 10-point plan, there were commitments around innovation for carbon capture and storage, um, innovation to support um, five gigawatts of, of hydrogen production by 2030. That's all great. But I think we need to start thinking about, well, beyond innovating on first-of-a-kind uh, CCUS projects and hydrogen production, how do we create a long-term market for ultra-low uh, carbon industrial products? And I think there we need to look at policy tools such as um, embedded carbon product standards, uh, which could uh, bring down over time the level of embodied carbon in steel, in cement, in aluminium. Uh, we need to be uh, looking at um, potential contract for differences uh, to uh, reward uh, the production of green hydrogen. Uh, we might want to be looking at a change in public procurement rule, especially for big infrastructure projects to incentivize um, uh, the uh, supply of, of low carbon uh, building materials. And, you know, we think we also need to, to, to consider incentives for, for storing carbon emissions. So there's a, there's a range of long-term 
market signals that we need to think about in order to really unleash private investment in all these areas. Because without private investment uh, flowing in those areas at the requisite pace and scale, we're not going to make a timely or economically sustainable transition to net zero. Um, it's important in order to figure out uh, whether something works or not, or, or how do you best make it to work from in a sort of technical, practical perspective. But it's also important in order to then understand what kind of regulatory framework or incentives and policies do you, will be best able to stimulate their take up further down the line. And it's very hard to answer those questions without, first of all, learning by doing. And I think a, uh, from talking to lots of heavy industrial uh, players on a, a, during a big project we did a couple of years ago, one thing that came out quite strongly was that there was a real sense of frustration from people in sectors such as aggregates, cement, steel, chemicals, who felt that too often innovation pots, pots, uh, innovation pots in the UK and beyond tended to be too small and too fragmented and not really all that well coordinated either. And a lot of people put that down to a fear of failure. The, the fear from a government perspective, not just here in the UK, it's, it's, it's definitely a trait shared by, by many other countries. You know, when you're investing public money in an innovation project, it may or may not work. And from a government standpoint, you'll always be terrified at the idea of having been seen to pump a lot of public money into a, uh, a grain infrastructure project, which, which later on didn't turn out to be, at least in technical terms, successful. But yet that's precisely how the private sector innovates. You, you try things out. I mean, that's the whole point of R&D. You, you try things out, some things work, some things don't work. You then you learn from the lessons of the pilots, you make them better. And then you ultimately end up with the right kind of infrastructure or, or, or product. And ultimately, if, if uh, we are to be successful at decarbonizing some of those harder to abate sectors, we need to learn by doing. We need to uh, support very high scale trials of technologies and uh, involving CCS, involving hydrogen in order to understand how best to make them work. And there, some things will work, some things won't work, but we will learn from it and understand how best to apply those technologies and new business models. And importantly, how best to design good policy to incentivize these in the, in the long term. So I think, I, I do think the government mindset is changing on that. Uh, but the next four years, without a doubt, are absolutely critical in terms of carrying out not piecemeal low and small scale innovation, but proper large scale trials of, of key technologies that we will need to rely on. Okay, well, that, that kind of leads me neatly into one of my next questions, which so we, we've sort of talked about those, uh, the, the key elements of the 10 point plan that you think, you know, have some grit and had some real value. So those priorities seem the right priorities from what you're saying broadly, we need obviously some more work around how the regulatory and policy landscape really supports that. But still, the priorities are broadly speaking, the right ones. So if we talk specifically about these hard to abate sectors again, what what are the next steps? Like, what do you think if you were sitting in the uh, strategy team of a, you know, a another large cement company or something? What what should the next steps be? What should hard to abate sectors be doing? Well, I think that the first one is to, is is really um, uh, developing the uh, at a company level, developing your own strategy in terms of. Uh, um, where you want to take your company in its contribution to net zero. And we've seen some really great commitments there. I mean, not very recently, our members, CEMEX, for example, um, uh, put in place a really uh, impressive uh, net zero strategy with some very 
ambitious uh, commitments to cut emissions by by 2030, uh, and really looking within that at the role of um, they developed a really interesting roadmap, which for me would be my the, the, my second sort of suggestion that beyond having a long term ambition and target, you need to have a clear vision or roadmap as to how you're going to get there. And, um, Simex did that really well uh, in terms of looking at the role of uh, resource efficiency and reusing materials to help them get there, the role of bioenergy, the role of carbon capture, the role of electrification. Um, so, so, so I think you know, developing a, a, a clear vision and plan to get there is really important. But I think the third plank is really active engagement with governments. You know, we spend a lot of time talking to uh, uh, for example, the industrial energy uh, team at the Department of Business and many other teams that are tasked to look at this agenda, where they are trying to design a new industrial decarbonisation strategy for the UK. And this is really the time to engage with government to help them prioritise areas of innovation, to help them really get the message that innovation at scale, this is the time for innovation at scale. We absolutely need to learn by doing at scale in order to then understand what the next steps should be. Um, and I think the, the sort of second big area of, 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 um, uh, of interaction with government has to be around uh, the industry's perspective on the policy mechanisms that they will best be able to respond to. And, and what, you know, as a, as a major cement, steel, chemical manufacturer, what do you need from policy in order to commit your investments and importantly raise finance uh, on the on uh, from investors uh, as part of your your journey towards towards net zero emissions you know what is the role what are the roles of uh, carbon storage uh, incentives uh, product standards uh, carbon border adjustment uh, taxes, public procurement reform, all those sorts of things. Government really needs, and in many ways, crying out for for good quality business input in those uh, in those areas. Um, and that's obviously something that we try and, and do a lot of at Aldersgate. There's definitely an area needed for future engagement. Um, I think the last uh, area that I think companies in heavy industry need to look at quite carefully, is, and it's I think a bit of a, a blind spot in industrial policy at the moment is helping government gain an understanding of the different needs of specific sectors within those heavy industrial sectors. Uh, how do, how do, why do sectoral differences matter? Why does geographical location matter? And at what, uh, well, if your plant is in a cluster or not in a cluster, how does that impact the areas where you need support in terms of innovation or the policy mechanisms that you need? So, I think something that's not yet well understood is, you know, if you are a heavy industrial manufacturer in a uh, industrial cluster located right next to the North Sea, the the options at your disposal are probably um, there are probably many uh, options at your disposal to help take you towards um, your your net zero objectives, and there will be an awful lot of areas where you can collaborate with other industrial users and make the most of the fact that you're just next to a major. Uh, carbon emission storage reservoir, but if you are uh, if you operate a plant like many sim, uh, cement manufacturers uh, do, for example, uh, which is much more inland and not in an industrial cluster, then what does that mean? What kind of different kind of what what options are open to you to get to net zero emissions, and what support do you need to get there? And I, and I think the latter actually has tended to be slightly forgotten in policy terms. We, we tend to focus much more on the big clusters, and I think we we're going to have to start appreciating those uh, geographical. Uh, cluster, non-cluster, and sectoral differences more in order to, be to better design policy. You mentioned at the beginning that in your kind of earlier part of your career, you'd done uh, a lot of work kind of 
uh, with regulatory bodies that were designing policy and were designing those structures. Given where you are now and who you represent now, has your view on that shifted at all? Or, or did just, you know, did what you believed at the time to be the right mechanisms, do they still feel like the right mechanisms to you? I think actually, um, to an extent, yes. I think I've always been very skeptical of the narrative that was very um, dominant uh, in my uh, uh, when I was a, um, a lawyer in the, in the late sort of just before, you know, up to the period up to 2010 and the early 2010s. You, you, there was a, a, quite a prevailing theory that the carbon price would sort it all just have a good carbon price and everything will follow. And I always believe that actually a carbon price is important, an important part of the puzzle, uh, but ultimately it needs to be uh, complemented by sector-specific policy interventions. That's absolutely essential because every sector has different characteristics. Uh, the capital costs of changing infrastructure at source to make it less carbon intensive uh, varies drastically from one sector to another. The business model changes differ drastically. And you can't expect a uniform carbon price to deliver on everyone's need. But it is an important part of the picture. So I think that this sort of um, this, this understanding that uh, in some cases you're going to need uh, revenue stabilization mechanisms like the contract for differences that we've seen in the renewable energy sector. In other sectors, it might be more about... Uh, very clear regulatory drivers, like I think it has to be for buildings, where we need to have minimum energy efficiency regulations for all buildings. Um, in other sectors, it might more be more about you know change uh, change in public procurement rules uh, or incentives to store carbon. Um, but it's 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 this you need a joined up policy approach to to decarbonisation, but you need uh, which can all sit around a carbon price, but you can't just rely on a carbon price alone. And and actually that yeah that that viewpoint hasn't actually changed over time. We talked a little bit then about the kinds of mechanisms that might be needed, um, contract for differences and and so forth, but all of those all of those pushes and pulls of regulatory policy have a cost on some level potentially to the taxpayer so what what is you know we've got 30 years to get to our net zero target i know for for many people um, who are in who are kind of have an interest in climate policy one of the questions would be how do we ensure the best value for money for the taxpayers that are funding this so on the one hand we're saying well, a lot of heavy industry would point to those innovation pots of cash and say, well, it's not very much and it doesn't really do the thing. But it's it's all money that's coming out of our pocket. And arguably this year has been both a benefit to climate policy and, you know, moving forward, but it will no doubt have an economic kind of flip side, won't it? Because there won't be as much money, perhaps, or as much willingness to to invest at the taxpayer level. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? About how, how do we ensure value for money and how do we talk about value for money well i mean the first thing i'd say is in i don't think i'd see 2020 as being particularly beneficial for the climate because actually if anything it stalled quite a lot of policy development so the you know the the the, the very near-term drop in emissions that is not really going to make much of a difference to 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 the climate but the in terms of in terms of value for for money i think you need to look at it from two perspectives one of them is around how do you design policy to make the transition to net zero emissions at the lowest possible cost? And uh, that's the first aspect. But the second one is, how do you um, design policy and how do you make targeted public spending, uh, which will help maximize on job creation 
export opportunities uh, for, for the country as well, because it both provide a, a return on investment. Um, so starting with the, the question of affordability, I think the best thing government can do is to, um, I don't think it's to limit spend on innovation, it's just making sure that Actually, I'd argue that innovate, spend on innovation is sufficiently sizable so as to make a difference. I think by having lots of fragmented and uh, small pots of innovation, and when you have them, uh, in, when you set them up in a way that's very uncoordinated, that is bad value for money. But we know some of the key technologies or business models we need to crack around um, hydrogen production, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen fuel cells, next generation offshore wind, next generation batteries. Let's focus a lot of our investments on those. Let's, let's try things at scale. And then critically, let's learn the lessons from them so that we then design policy in a way that will de-risk investment in all those technologies and therefore cut the cost of finance and therefore cut the overall cost of investing uh, in those technologies in the long run, which will allow us to meet our um, emission reduction uh, objectives in as low cost a way as possible. But I think policy clarity and certainty informed by real life innovation is the best thing we can do for the consumer, the citizen, and, and, and do a good use of, of, um, of public money. But then within that, going back to my, my second plank, um, targeted innovation spending, and very clear public policy signals. If you if you set them out well in advance, and if you don't change the rules uh, repeatedly, provide a good degree of stability to the sector, are essential to 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 support job creation. I mean, we've seen that you know in the offshore wind sector. I think the offshore wind sector is now targeting twenty seven thousand uh, people to be employed in a sector by by um, uh, by twenty thirty. Uh, you're uh, you're seeing um, a um, uh, a, a huge amount of uh, uh, of employment uh, uh, and, and growth of opportunity having been having been triggered by by policy by you know by policy clarity and uh, the UK has a wide range of competitive advantages. Um, we just really need to ensure that we have consistent policy to tap into those. So in areas such as electric vehicle manufacturing, charging infrastructure, energy efficiency installation, next generation uh, offshore wind, uh, all of the and, and ultra low carbon industrial um, uh, products. These are all areas where, where the UK actually has a good knowledge base, a good know-how base, and, and can really maximize on supply chain growth and employment opportunities. So it's really something that I hope to see um, uh, further progress on. Okay, well, moving into, I suppose, one of my last areas for discussion, I was interested in your view. You've already mentioned a little bit about the role that product standards might play. Um, can you expand on that a bit? Like, what, what is it that needs to happen here? And, and obviously, the UK doesn't operate in total isolation. You know, we have trade partners. What would it mean to those partners and those uh, supply chains as well? Where I think product standards could be an area of promise is that up until now, we've tended to have product standards for consumer goods, which are more focused on how energy efficient those goods are once consumers use them. And most of them derive from the eco-design regulations that have been developed um, over several decades at, at EU level. Where I think product standards can now make a difference is by actually uh, mandating particular levels of resource efficiency but also uh, embedded carbon emissions uh, at the production stage uh, of the of the process, and I think this could be quite an impactful way of providing a clear market signal uh, 
to stimulate a greater supply and demand of low carbon industrial products, whether it be steel or cement or aluminium. And I think that the benefit of a product standard approach is that you can then, once you have those standards, you can ratchet, ratchet those up or tighten these up over time uh, as you as you get closer to, to the overall goal of, of net zero emissions. So I think there's a lot of um, promise in that because it does send a very clear market signal, but also in the context of trade policy, I think it does help um, ensure that there is a level playing field. Now, one of my one of my concerns as the UK enters a, uh, enters into new new trade agreements is making sure that our our trade agreements and our overall trade policy is consistent with our policy on on climate change, on environment, and on low carbon growth. What I don't want to see is being uh, is seeing our, our domestic manufacturers being asked to invest in making their production uh, processes net zero compliant, whilst a range of um, high carbon industrial products still make their way on the UK market and, and, and compete with our lower carbon industrial products. So I think having clear product standards that, that dr- improve resource efficiency and also drive down embedded carbon over time and are applicable to all market participants would be a really effective way of, of both creating a clear market signal, putting the UK as a really signaling the UK as a very clear hub for ultra-low carbon in, uh, industrial innovation and industrial production, but whilst also providing a level playing field. Now, uh, clearly, the holy grail would be if we could take the standards uh, um, to some of our trading partners, or in many ways, in some cases, um, work with our trading partners to develop those standards to make sure that they, they apply on both sides of, uh, of a trade deal. And that's, you know, the more global we can make those things over time, the the better. Uh, but I think there is it's, it's definitely an area of promise for, for the UK. And whilst I completely recognise the um, benefits of carbon border adjustment taxes, which have been um, discussed at, uh, at EU level in particular, and which do have some merit, I think that um, going down the product standard routes would be at the very least a useful complement to a carbon border adjustment tax. And potentially, if a carbon border adjustment tax proves not to be feasible because of being far too politically sensitive, I think product standards could be a a useful alternative to them and one that um, is, uh, is less politically charged than uh, when than going down the route of uh, border taxation. Thank you, Nick. I think it's really useful to have that combined background of yours, like the the lawyer's attention to precision and uh, and so forth, but also your work with corporates really showing. You know, as you've said, we need something that has a sort of system wide view, not such piecemeal activity going on in the UK or anywhere. So it's been really useful to hear your perspective on that. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. <laughs>